Um, welcome to uh, the Quaker Meeting House. Um, welcome to this transition, this very special transition Wilmslow uh, meeting. I think we've got transition new mills here, um, low carbon lin, uh, transition Bolton. Um, anyone else? Sustainable Hayfield. Fantastic. <laughs> so well, welcome to Wilmslow. So um, I think for me, the key thing about elections is it's really, really important to vote, but it's really important to realise that that's not enough. But it's, about, it's not about don't vote, it's about don't just vote. And actually what I want to tell you about this evening, really, I think, is, is something that is already happening uh, around the world, here, many, many other places, that is, that is really telling us a new story about how change happens. There's a kind of a quiet revolution, I think, happening around the world of people like ourselves just deciding it's time to do things in a different way. And that's the story I really want to tell you about. So myself and my friend here, we need to develop a system of winks and nods so that you know when to press the button. Because <laughs> 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 I can't do it from here. So. Okay. <clears throat> so one of the things that's struck me all the way through the whole election campaign that has been really missing has been magic. I've not heard anybody speak who I've felt any kind of, sort of magic or, or something fun, fantastic. And so I want to start by telling you a story here. This is, this is something for me that there is something that transition can create which is really magical. And some of you will have felt it in events that you've put on, things you've organised, projects you've run. There's something that happens that's really extraordinary. And this is... Um, uh, last October, October the 3rd, uh, at about half past ten in the morning, down in my town of, of Tottenham, down in Devon. This gentleman here is the town crier. We're standing outside the gates of an of a, of a abandoned factory. It was a milk factory that was a factory since the 1940s. Uh, at its peak in the 60s, it employed about 200 people. Uh, they made a ton of clotted cream every day. I think the cardiac units of the southwest are still uh, dealing with the fallout from that. And uh, it shut down in 2007. 163 people lost their jobs. And since then, it just sort of sat and disintegrated. And at that time when it shut, there was a group of us that came together and said, we should be in charge of what happens on that site. This community should be designing and, and creating what happens on that site. This is an incredible opportunity for us to determine what happens there. After about five years, we'd officially rather had enough of hanging around, and we ramped it up. We ran a big campaign. We had Jonathan Dimbleby and Hugh Fanny Whittingstall and people as patrons. We did big press events, 
and uh, it culminated in a meeting uh, in our local MP's office with people from the company. And at that point it went from being a when is, it, is this going to happen to being a when is it going to happen. So this, this event was after we'd signed a contract. We'd taken, it didn't take about a year and a half to nail down this contract of what we were going to do. So this was an event where we made a public announcement. This, the, the town crier. So nobody knew what was really happening. We sent out on, um, actually, where's my little book? I'll read it out to you because it's rather magical. We, uh, we, we sent out to everybody in the days and the run up to it uh, on Facebook and Twitter. All there was was the following quote, and see if at the end, if anyone can tell me what book this comes from. Somewhere in the distance, a church clock began striking ten. Very slowly, with a loud creaking of rusty hinges, the great iron gates of the factory began to swing open. The crowd became suddenly silent. The children stopped jumping about. All eyes were fixed upon the gate. Charlie and Chocolate Factory. <laughs> so that was all people knew, really. So everybody came, and the, the town crier read out this announcement. He said, for seven long years, the gates of this factory have been closed, have been locked. Today, we'll open those gates. Can open the next picture? And so we opened the gates. And they did creak. <laughs> and the 250 people who had come out at half past ten on a Thursday morning, all then went on to the site next. They, they, they got given the... Uh, um, they got given the uh, statement that we had agreed about what was going to happen on site. They all got given a copy of the golden envelope. And uh, everybody came on and then we read out the announcement and then we took a picture with everybody on the site with the factory behind them. It's still a day, it's still an occasion that makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. There was a real magic to it, there was a power to it, there was a sense of possibility to it, which I think is something that really kind of runs through transition. And it's something, part of the reason why I think we don't see that reflected uh, in an election campaign so much is because that's something that was best done by us. Mm. It's something that's best done at the community level with people who know the place, who know the stories, who know the history, who can do remarkable things, uh, starting from that place. Okay, next. Part of the reason why we do this stuff, this is an advert, I travel quite a lot on trains, I came up here today on the train, and uh, occasionally I read The Economist magazine on the train, which is never very good for my blood pressure. And on the back, recently there was this advert, which I thought was just gloriously stupid. Um, possibly the most stupid thing I've ever seen, which is an advert for this car, which makes out like this is the kind of ultimate in, in human evolution. This car and those trousers are the, are the apex of human evolution. This, we've arrived. Never mind the fact that somehow, strangely, ever since the beginning of time, things always have dinner jackets on, and that somehow humanity was always male, which I think we can quite easily disprove that one from our audience this evening. You know, this idea that somehow this is as, this is as good as it's ever going to get is a really dangerous myth. And of course what's happening, because actually if we stay with that story, we're going to end up with a, a six degree, seven degree world. You know, this is a suicidal uh, uh, approach. And actually what, what you're all involved in, what, what's happening around the world is creating the next stage in this story which doesn't look anything like this. There'll be much better trousers. <laughs> so, I promise better trousers. And uh, uh, yeah. Okay. And that, and that,
Sorry? And adverbs. Indeed. <laughs> and this is really kind of the, one of the things that was always on the pin transition from the beginning. The idea that if we, if, if we really want to uh, uh, avoid climate change in a way that is, uh, that, that is being, the picture being painted by climate scientists, actually what people tell us, what they tell us now is we need to leave about three quarters of the known fossil fuels in the ground, this much of these fossil fuels in the ground, and that's just to have a 50% chance of staying below two degrees. That's like playing Russian roulette with half the chambers full. I don't like those rocks myself. So actually the scale of what we need to do to avoid that is enormous. It goes far beyond the idea that we just drive a little bit slower and stick solar panels on new houses. It's a profound kind of challenge to the scale on which we do things and the way in which we do things. The challenge, I think, is that we, when we look at this question of having to leave fossil fuels underground, the only way we're going to do that is if we can paint a picture of what we could create above ground, which is so enticing and so delicious and so fantastic that actually this becomes a complete no-brainer. Of course we want to do that, because look, we can do that. It'd be fantastic. And that's really what I want to go on to tell you about. So, it strikes me, strikes me that you know, what we're seeing around the world happening in many, many places is ordinary people starting this happening. It's already happened. It's already moving. It's running. It's like a kind of mycorrhizal fungus that you inoculate and it runs under the surface. And it's popping and it's fruiting in all kinds of different places. And there are different sort of elements to the transition that's taking place. The first one, it strikes me, is from anywhere to here. Okay? Because the, the, way our, the way at the moment our economy works, in somewhere like here, if this were Wilmslow, I think that's actually Brussels or something, but imagine this is Wilmslow, is at the moment stuff comes in, money comes in from all over the place, and then it all goes out again. So you spend money at the supermarket, it goes into the supermarket, they cash up at the end of the day, it's gone. You know, our, our high streets increasingly become a kind of an extractive industry, they exist to extract resources and money out from where you live, they really have no loyalty or commitment to that place. Okay? So when we talk about sustainability, often really what we mean is having less stuff coming in, so that less stuff is going out, and that's kind of an improvement. It's kind of a bit better, but we could do better than that. So often people now talk about this idea of a circular economy, where the different businesses, the different big organisations kind of swap stuff with each other and see themselves in more of a kind of a cyclical whole and again that's better so rather than buying a washing machine you, you, you buy the ability to wash your clothes and then they make better washing machines so you have a more circular economy that's better but actually in transition we're looking at something more like this lots of, lots of cycles how do you get the money to do as much as it can before it leaves in a forest, in a woodland the water, the nutrients, do as much as they can before they leave. They're incredibly sophisticated at how they cycle that stuff and make the most out of it. How can we have a local economy where when money comes in, it's passed from person to person? Economists talk about this thing called the local multiplier effect, where if you take a pound and you spend it in Asda or somewhere, it generates about £1.40's worth of economic activity in your local economy. If you spend it in a local independent shop, it's £2.50's worth of activity. That's the foundation that we need to be building on how, how we create a, a resilient economy moving forward from here. Okay? And the way I like to talk about it is in terms of beer, actually. <laughs> so there's two different kinds of beer here. They look, you know, we could, we, we, if we want a bottle of beer, we have a bottle of beer. They're all just bottles of beer. Okay? Well, they're not. There's a, there's a very important difference. 
This is a bottle of Stella Artois, or it could be Budweiser, it could be any of those corporate, gassy, sort of mass-produced, tastes exactly the same wherever in the world you have a bottle of Stella, tastes exactly the same, as opposed to the, the kind of explosion of craft breweries that we're seeing now around the world. Ten years ago in America, about 1% of beer that was sold was made by independent craft breweries. Now it's about 12% and growing, and the same is happening here. So you could go and buy a bottle of beer, you get a bottle of beer. Actually, but the stories behind them are completely different. The business model behind this is get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Craft breweries tend to work, they get to a size where they're sustainable, and then they expand in different ways, in terms of creativity, in terms of flavours. They're rooted in place, they're rooted in a community, their beers celebrate the culture of the place, they try and connect to local producers, all of that kind of thing. It's a completely different thing, but actually this is better, these are much nicer. There's a win-win-win here. We build stronger economies, we have more diversity, we have more flavour, we have more reasons to talk to each other. I'm always amazed, the other, when the other day on the news they were talking about how sociologists now talk about uh, an epidemic of loneliness in this country. What kind of economy creates an epidemic of loneliness? You know, and the idea that you can go shopping and you never meet anybody, you know, we need things that can bring people together and, and get those conversations happening again. This gentleman here is the mayor of Bristol, George Ferguson. He takes his full salary, £67,500, in Bristol pounds. I don't think he has a mortgage. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is the Bristol Pound. This is the local currency scheme for the city of Bristol. And uh, it's, it's really fascinating. So it came out of Transition Bristol and a good relationship they had built with, over years with the city council. You can spend them in about 800 businesses. You can spend them on the buses. You can pay your council tax with them, your business rates with them. You can, uh, yeah, you can and they also have a, a mobile phone-based currency. So you go into the shop and you text the shopkeeper and that's your transaction done. And they work with a local credit union, and uh, there was a recent study that was done which looked at the interact that when people go shopping with their phone, the number of interactions and conversations they have with other people, as opposed to if you just go shopping with plastic. And they argued that actually you have a lot more conversations, which is fantastic. You know, when we end up in a society where nobody has any reason to have a conversation with each other, things start to unravel really quite quickly. Uh, this is the topmost pound. They're not that big, obviously. <laughs> that would make shopping rather exhausting, I suspect. We have a £21 note, and people say, why have you got a £21 note? And we say, well, why not? <laughs> Here's a topmost pound, £21 note. I should pass it back. And, and a £1 note as well. So um, the, idea of, the idea of local currencies is, is that if you think of the economy of where you live as being like a leaky bucket... Local currencies can't get out because they have no value anywhere else. They, they, they build the multiplier effect into transactions and relationships that you have with people. They encourage people to think, how am I going to then spend this? But also, from, that, from anywhere to here bit, they also really root people in place and culture and story. The conversation about who you're going to put, who are going to be the heads on your notes, is a really interesting question. What do we celebrate? What do we value? What do we cherish uh, about the place where we live? So yeah, so we have a £21 note. 
which has Dorothy Elmhurst on it, who started the Dartington Hall experiment, if anybody is aware of it. <coughs> and this is our, our pay-by-text system. I love it. It's great. You go into the... the so you, you just send a text. You say pay and then the name of the shop and then the amount. And then you send a text and then their phone goes ping. And they'll go, oh, yeah, it's so exciting. <laughs> they get so excited when you go into pay with your phone. They're like, oh. And then you send them. That, that gap between when you send a text and when their phone goes ping is like those old Fry's Delight sort of anticipation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yeah. Okay. This is the Exeter Pound. These are the, these are the people who are setting up the Exeter Pound, which is going to be launching in September. This is an idea which has gained a kind of momentum and an energy in lots of places now looking at doing these kind of local currency schemes because they do something, I, I don't do this very often, but a couple of weeks ago I went to a, a supper, uh, an evening meal with some bankers, as I said, it doesn't happen very often, and uh, we were chatting, as you do, about local currencies, and uh, I said, oh, actually, I've got some here, so I got out some topless pounds and some Brixton pounds and showed them these local currencies, and this guy said, this banker guy said, um, doesn't it just like, make life really complicated? I said, well, the beauty of it is it makes life really complicated for you. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of us have a great time. <laughs> and, he, and, he, he was, and he just couldn't get, he couldn't get couldn't it at all. Around, couldn't get it around at all. So um, this, is, this, is, this is one of the things that you can do with local currencies that you can't... Yeah, because he said, so what can you do? Surely everything you could do with a local currency, you could do with a national currency. I said, no, but you can't. Because actually the, what, what local currencies do is they start to sow... A, a community and a culture back together again in a way that you can't do with Sterling. The stories that you can tell, this is going to be the £5 note in Exeter. This guy's called Adam Stansfield. He played for Exeter City. He was a local lad from Tiverton. He played for Exeter City uh, for about 10 years. He died then very young, tragically, of cancer at the age of 29. And uh, when he died, Exeter City withdrew the number 9 shirt. So there'll never be another number 9 player for Exeter City. And then they've since dedicated a lot of their charitable work is all around um, cancer, raising money uh, in his name. So to have him on the note, there's a really lovely story there. When they launched the Brixton Pound, they had a woman called Olive Morris who started the Brixton Black Women's Association in the 1970s, who died very young. All her family came along to the launch of the Brixton Pound with their daughter on the note. It's really powerful. Next. And one of the lovely things that they're doing with the Exeter Pound, they've put lots of thinking into how are we going to really engage this really widely. We don't want this to just be a kind of like middle-class sort of little token things that we can just go show. We want this to be, people in this city to really feel they own this. So one of the things they're doing is the Exeter Chiefs, who are their Premier League rugby team, are going to be hosting one of the Rugby World Cup matches uh, in September. So the Brixton Pound, the Exeter Pound launches in September, and uh, the Exeter Chiefs have agreed that they will accept the Exeter Pound and all of their events. So they're going to be doing a limited edition £15 note, uh, which, is, uh, which has Exeter Chiefs on one side, and on the other side has a picture of, I can't remember what they're called now, there was in 1820, there was a, an all-black Calypso singing group who toured Britain and who went to Exeter, and one of the songs that they bought with them was Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, which that was the first time people heard it in this country. And then it went on to be the anthem of rugby and so on. So, so again, there's those stories that you can tell uh, in this way, which are really interesting. Yes. So this idea of things that we can do that, are, that, that, that come out of place, and that actually place matters, the fact that we all kind of 
all of our towns and cities increasingly start to look exactly the same. And that kind of vernacular architecture, which was dictated by local building materials, which is what defined the places where we live and the building styles that we had, that stuff is now all kind of going out of the window. Actually, there is stuff that we can do from the ground which really represents the culture. This is in Brixton. This is Brixton Energy, which is a fantastic community energy company in the south of London. This guy here is Ed Davey. Uh, the former um, uh, Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, most likely. Uh, and um, he, uh, he, um, uh, he, and he decided about a year ago, wouldn't it be great if we could have a community renewables revolution in this country? Well, there already was a community renewables revolution. Uh, it was happening in Brixton and hundreds and hundreds of other places. So this is them launching it here. This is them doing three because... This is the Brixton Energy 3. They do the community share launches. They invite local people to invest money to put solar panels on some of the poorest housing uh, there. Brixton Energy is a beautiful kind of reflection of Brixton. The first share launch they did was mostly kind of white, middle-class, trendy, green Brixton people. By the time they were doing a third one, it was mostly the people who lived in these blocks, taking money they might otherwise have put in an ISO and putting it into energy on the roof, training local young people to install renewables, generating a fund to make their homes more energy efficient. This kind of stuff can only come up from people in the place where they live who understand that. Okay. And most of the good ideas, I think, come from people. I don't think, you know, my experience is in big organisations, the higher up you go, the imagination sort of tends to evaporate. Really. <laughs> and uh, this was, we recently did five what we call transition roadshows. Rather than having one big conference every year, we did five roadshows. And we did one in Penwith, uh, in Penzance, in Cornwall. And we did a whole day that was a kind of a brainstorming day. What could happen here? What, could, what would the new economy look like for, the, for, for Penwith? And this is all the stuff that came up with the Cornwall Bank, uh, community energy, food, all this stuff all tying in together. All this stuff works. It all works. It's all been trialled all around the world. But you know, this is where, this is where the great ideas come from. And this is, in, this is in London, Transition Crystal Class. Does anybody know who this guy is? Yeah. Captain Sensible. Captain Sensible, very good. <laughs> Captain Sensible played guitar in the Damned, who were a celebrated punk group, and there was a singer in his own right. And this is in Transition, in Crystal Palace, on the edge of Crystal Palace. Transition Crystal Palace are a fantastic group in London. And um, <clears throat> this was a kind of a corner uh, which was just covered in rubbish. There was tons of rubbish dumped on this piece of ground. We use this term sometimes in transition, the power to convene. Transition can convene lots of people to come together and go and do something. So they came together and over weeks they cleared up this place. They took tons and tons of rubbish off this place. They created a beautiful garden. They wanted to name it after somebody local who was famous. And this is kind of in South Norwood, really, which is on the edge. Who's famous and from South Norwood? <laughs> Captain says so it's called the sensible garden, and this is called the sensible seat. But again, it's a beautiful kind of quirky, funny celebration of the place, and there's a kind of a magic to it. You know, these kind of occasions where people come together, they've created something that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And actually, quite often, you know, we have this idea that the only change that matters is when we're sort of doing something that saves millions of tons of carbon and is some big sort of a thing. I think what we forget very often is that for a lot of people, the idea that you can affect any change in the world is a, is a kind of an alien idea. 
and actually things like this where people can see the world around them starting to change, things actually changing, are really important in terms of giving people confidence to sort of take the next steps. So the next transition I think that we're seeing happening around us in the world very quickly is from divest to reinvest. So what, what we're seeing around the world okay, is uh, this movement. Is <laughs> this divestment movement which is encouraging companies who, who hold investment in fossil fuels to get rid of them. And it's a campaign which is gaining momentum very, very quickly as the message sinks in that you really want to be the first person out of fossil fuels and not the last person out of fossil fuels. Uh, and that's really important, okay? But actually what we're seeing also happening around the world is, is, is this, this move towards recognising that local economies matter and that local economies are the foundation on which we build uh, where we go from here is trying to create new opportunities for investment. Where might that money go if it decides it wants to support this kind of stuff? This is in Bath, so out of Transition Bath and Transition Caution, they created Bath and West Community Energy. They were a really interesting model because they, they designed it in such a way that they wanted to attract investment from local people, but they created a model whereby people could move their self-invested pension into community renewables. It meant they've done about two or three different share launches now. They've raised about £10 million uh, you know, in, in, in sort of investments from local people and from the local council and other things. So they now have a local uh, community energy company which is doing fantastic things. But actually, you know, when we, if you go on to the next one, this is in, in, in Liège in Belgium, where I went recently. And uh, Transition Liège, some people in Transition Liège, a bit like, so near where I live, there's a place called Topsham, and they were doing transition for a while, and they said, actually, what is it that really excites people in this town? Is it energy issues? Is it climate change? Is it beer? I think it could be the beer, actually. <laughs> and so they started a community brewery called uh, Top Topsham Ales, and people bought shares in it. Anyway, so they were kind of similar, I think, in Liège. What do people like? Wine. I think people like wine. So this is Vin de Liège, which is a cooperative vineyard. They raised two million euros in shares to start this thing from, from people in Liège. And I said to this guy, I said, how on earth did you do that? What? Surely most people, you just wouldn't even go there. He said, he said my advice to people, he said, is to not be afraid. <laughs> he said, Belgium is a wealthy country and people like wine. Yeah. That was it, that was it. That was, as far as he was concerned, at the end of the conversation. And then they just got on with it. And, and uh, now they're bottling their first uh, wine from this year. But actually finding ways that we can get people to invest inwards are really, really important, I think. It doesn't have to be anything like that kind of scale. Obviously, that's, that's one end of the kind of scale. This is in, in Slathwaite uh, in Yorkshire. This is the Green Valley Grocer. Their local grocers shut down. So they, uh, and they had a few weeks to try and come up with something else. So these guys organised a community share thing. They raised about £18,000 in shares for local people. And then within five weeks, they had the shop open again, running as a community cooperative, which has been, then been a real catalyst for other people starting new businesses to support... Uh, support the shop. Okay? And that idea of investment, sometimes we just we always assume that word investment means money. But actually, if you, if, if you live uh, here and you want to start a new business, you don't just need money to start a business, you need all kinds of different things. If you want to start a new food business or an energy, whatever, you need support in all kinds of different ways. If you can lend someone a pen, that's an investment. If you can babysit their children while they go and see the bank manager, that's an investment. If you can help them with a website, show them how to use 
a programme to do an email shot or something, or do their legal work for them pro bono for a year, or lend them £10,000. All of that is investing. This is an event that we run every year in Tottenham. It's called the Local Entrepreneurs Forum. And it's a really beautiful, replicable model. And the idea is, so you, have a, you, you invite people who have ideas for new businesses that kind of fit with this sort of approach. And you invite people who are mentors, people who maybe worked in business for a long time, they might be retired, they might want to offer some of that to people, and people who are investors, with that idea that everybody is an investor, really. And then they, all, they spend the morning just meeting each other, getting to know each other, and then in the afternoon we do a thing called the Community of Dragons, which is kind of the opposite of the dragon's den on the telly, you know, where some of the people sit on stage with loads of money and either give it to or humiliate the people who walk through the door in front of them. The idea of this one is, People come up, they pitch their idea, they say, oh, this is my idea. People get to ask some questions, and then people offer them support. I'll give you this, I'll give you that, I'll help you with this, I've got this you can have. I'll give you 50 quid, if, I'll give you 100 quid if five other people do. Okay. And it's really fantastic. Last year we had this group of four women who run a market garden. They came needing £1,000 to expand what they do. They went home with £3,500, with 30 members of a box scheme they hadn't even launched yet. Someone doing their website for them, someone doing their legal work for them, people offering them all sorts of stuff. That's what happens when a community gets behind its, its entrepreneurs in that way, if you have the right vehicle to enable that to happen. The first one of these to happen outside of Tottenham happens in Brixton on the 2nd of June, uh, and it's starting to pop up in all kinds of other places too. And actually what we're trying to create with that really is, is this idea that you know, we, we can have lots of different things, but the important thing is the relationships between them. If you press the button about three times, yeah, and once more, and again, beautiful, thank you. <laughs> so there are lots of these different models now all over the country. You can see these things, we know they work. We know that local currencies work. We know that community energy companies work, community banks work, community-owned transport works community energy companies, uh, uh, different models for caring for the elderly, community bakers, community farms, all those things work. But actually the tricky bit is, is, is how they all feel part of a story. And that's kind of the bit the transition brings. And any of those of you who are ecologists or study permaculture, you know, you, you know that in an ecosystem where that resilience comes from isn't the diversity of the elements, it's the relationships between them. It's the connections between them. And that's really what transition brings to this. We can do all this stuff, but it's so much more powerful if it's part of a kind of a community, a connected web of people who are doing this stuff. The third one is from someone should to let's. There's an apostrophe missing, I did it on the train. Um, and again, this is something, you know, going back to the election, this is all the thing, we put so much energy into this. Why don't, when are they going to, why don't, who, 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 well, actually, never mind, sod it. Let's just get on with it and do it ourselves. Okay. So how do you do this? So, how, so this is just a few kind of tips for anybody who's here who, who's thinking, wouldn't it be great to start Transition? It's kind of a few tips for how to get it started, really. Transition's been an experiment now that's been running for nearly 10 years in 50 countries now around the world, thousands of uh, communities and people all around the world as part of a learning network, sharing their experiences, their successes, their failures, to try and work out collectively how you might do this. One of the first things you do is you form an initiating group, which is not starting something that you're still going to be in in 10 years' time, but that first group of people come together with that intention 
So you just lay the foundations for whoever comes next. There's a kind of humility built into doing this from the beginning that's really important. The second one is to develop a group. You know, we can, people often look at some of the projects I've talked about just now and imagine they sort of happen by magic. You know? They sort of grow out of the lawn like a mushroom on an autumn morning. Actually, they happen because a lot of people, like yourselves, put a lot of time, a lot of energy in, into making that happen. But actually, keeping groups together is not a skill that we learn in school. In running meetings that people will want to go to every month, nobody teaches us that. As we get more and more of a kind of individual society, we lose a lot of those skills. So a big thing in transition is about learning you know, how to do groups in a, well, in a way that work well. Having a vision about where we want to go is really important. Uh, a vision for where we live. This is one of the transition groups in London, in Kentish Town, I think. Who, um, who went out with all these beautiful apple trees and put them all along uh, this bit in the high street so that for the Saturday, everybody walking up in our high street walked through an orchard mm -hmm. that appeared out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. sort of changing people's expectations of where we could be going, what it might look like. And actually everybody came back and said, can we just plant, can we just have these things here all the time? So a vision for your group, a vision for your area are really important. Engaging your community in a whole range of different ways. This is in South Africa. Sometimes people say in, in, in transition, well, you know, we need to really think about community engagement because we find we're mostly kind of white middle class people doing transition. This is the other way around. This is the guy doing transition. This is in South Africa, kind of going out to the, to the rest of the community where he is to try and get people involved in the transition group they've started in one of the, uh, in one of the townships in a place called Greaton in South Africa. Um, but finding those creative ways to really kind of bring everybody so it feels like something that belongs to everybody is really important. And this is that transition group uh, in, in Greaton. And um, there's a really nice story about a guy from America who came to, he'd heard that transition had started in South Africa and he wanted to go and help. So uh, on the edge of this place there was the, the town dump in this beautiful place with these beautiful kind of red mountains and this big dump there. And he, and he said, um, I realised that I'd spent all my teenage years going to festivals, going to music festivals, where we would turn up at a beautiful green site and we would spend the next four days covering it in rubbish. And I thought, what would it look like if we went to a place that was covered in rubbish and spent four days tidying it up? And so the idea of what they call the Trash to Treasure uh, festival was started. And uh, this, is a, this is a really neat thing that, that, that uh, came from Guatemala, I think, originally, and they're called eco-bricks. And the idea is, 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 in, is in countries where there's, a lot, where there's not a kind of infrastructure to deal with waste, and there's lots of plastic bottles and plastic stuff all over the place, what they do is they take plastic bottles and, uh, and, they, and a stick, and you pack it full of crisp packets and plastic bags and stuff like that, clean stuff, uh, until you can't get anything else, and then you put the lid on, that's an eco-brick. That's a building brick. In Guatemala, in schools, they get the kids every week have to bring in their homework written on a stuffed eco-brick. So they go home, they make an eco-brick, they write their homework on it, it gets marked, and then they start to build new buildings for the schools. So this is them building a new building using eco-bricks. You mortar them together with clay or cement or something, and then they build a building into it. Next. One of the aspects of transition as well is this idea of inner transition, that this isn't just purely about solar panels and carrots and kind of hardware. It's also recognising the fact that we need to look after each other doing this stuff. And burnout is, is a kind of an ever-present risk for people who are 
doing, who are activists, who are doing stuff. And actually, this is something that we want to sustain over a long period of time. We need to look out for each other doing this. Uh, and so one of the things that we do uh, in Totnes is, you know, those of you who know Totnes know we have more psychotherapists per square foot than anywhere else in the country. <laughs> and so we had a challenge that we set to them quite early on and said, um, how can you help? You know, what, what does it look like if you bring your expertise to this process? And so what, what we have there is a thing which is called a mentoring scheme. So anybody who works in the heart of TTT can get free support, free uh, training, free kind of mentoring or counselling, whatever, at any point they want it. And it makes such a difference in terms of reducing burnout, reducing exhaustion, people feeling kind of supported, having that balance between uh, life and family and work and all that kind of stuff is really important to have a mindfulness of that thing. And also feeling like a part of a movement. This is in, in Brasilândia, which is a favela in São Paulo. One of the things that has always just amazed me with transition is that, that thing, you know, we always said just take it, run with it, let it go where it wants to go, you know, that kind of viral thing. So when we got a phone call one day from this, this uh, uh, favela in Sao, in Sao Paulo, and they said, uh, yeah, we, we, we've started doing transition, and uh, we're going to have our unleashing, our launch event next, in, in, in next month. Could you come? I said, well, no, I'm not going to come to Brazil. I don't fly, and uh, it's quite a long way. And uh, uh, I'll just go back that way. And um, they said, uh, well, you, well, okay, well, could, could you participate on Skype? So I did. So on Saturday morning, I was sat at my kitchen table, and, and I could see there in this, that there we had this marquee put up, and there were rappers and nuns and chickens and guys with big feather headdresses and face paint on. Fantastic. And they had this, and this guy did this rap in Portuguese all about transition. And they were just all over it. They thought it was fantastic. And now they've used it to start all kinds of social enterprises. And there they, they frame it more as being about social enterprise, ending violence to women, public health, these kind of things. But it's been a real kind of catalyst for people doing stuff. And this is a public art project that they did. Okay? And then consolidate. You know, this is really once you have all those things in place, then you can go off and do all kinds of different things. This is Transition Lewis who raised £310,000 to cover their local brewery in, uh, in solar panels. And then the brewery brewed a special sunshine ale to celebrate. You'll see beer has been a recurring theme to this <laughs> talk, by the way. Okay, why not, indeed. And actually, a, a big part of that is, is really, I think for me, there's an insight about a lot of the stuff that, that we want to do, and we sometimes imagine transitions about energy companies and local money and da 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 the key thing in transition really is about rebuilding relationships and, and sort of sticking the kind of social aspects of the places where we live back together again. And that was really, you know, so, so this is a thing we did called Transition Streets, which uh, is, is the idea that you know, how do we help the people around us to reduce their energy use, reduce their water use? Do you give them a DVD? What do you do? do you, how do you do it? So the idea is if, if we can get together with a group of people on our streets, Look at water one week, energy the next week, and so on and so on. That's really how it happens. So we started it in Tottenham, there was about 550 households did it. On, our, on average, they cut their carbon by about 1.3 tonnes, save themselves about 600 pounds a year. But when you meet people walking down the street and they say, Rob, I did transition streets, it was fantastic. They never say, because I saved 1.3 tonnes of carbon. <laughs> they say, guys, come on, I know Dave over the road, isn't it interesting? You know, and actually there was a big bit of research that was done afterwards that said that the key thing everybody said was, I feel part of my community, I feel more connected to this place, I feel like I, I, feel like I fit in, I feel like I know people. 
that's really, really powerful. And, almost, and then also you just happen to be you know, doing all the other stuff. But when we talk about building resilience, that sticking people back together again is as important <coughs> as the carbon stuff. I think. This is it now in St Albans, uh, in uh, um, Newcastle in Australia. This is something that's gone all over the place. The beauty of having a learning network is when you come up with something that works in one place, it can replicate very, very quickly through that network. And a lot of these ideas, we sometimes imagine, oh, well, this, yes, well, Rob, I see, yeah, I kind of get that it might work in Totnes. <laughs> Actually, really, in the real world, no, nobody takes any of this kind of stuff. Seriously, it's all about bigger and cheaper, and that's all anybody cares about. Actually, that's not. These ideas are kind of spreading beyond the transition movement, and they're going all over the place, okay? So this is, uh, this is something that we did in, 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 in transition, which I think is, uh, which was doing these economic blueprints. So the idea was, how do we build an economic case for transition? Can we argue that something like transition is actually a form of economic development and is actually a more valuable form of economic development than the current model? Which basically says, just open up your economy, let, let all the big players in, let them take it all over and they'll create some jobs. And we'll build houses all over the place. Fantastic. But actually, can we, we can do better than that. So what we did in Totnes and, and Herefordshire and Brixton, so a rural market town, a county, and an urban neighbourhood was to map how much money do we spend on food, actually? And how much of that is spent through supermarkets? How much is spent through local independent businesses? <coughs> Nobody had ever looked at that before, really. How much do we spend on energy? How much of that could we generate ourselves? We found in Thomas we spend £30 million on food every year, and of that, £22 million leaves through two supermarkets. Wow. 17.5 through one single supermarket. In Brixton, 93% of what they spend on food leaves through supermarkets. In Buxton and Derbyshire, who we did one for more recently, only 1% of what they spend on food goes through local independent businesses. All the rest leaves through supermarkets. That money, 90% of that money is extracted and gone the next day after they've cashed up. So, that, so they, we did ours with the town council, the district council, the chamber of commerce, all those partners. And actually what it means then is you can say, if we could manage a 10% shift, as nobody's saying everybody should not go to supermarkets anymore, everybody should only buy local produce, but everybody could manage a 10% shift. And that 10% you would probably find cheaper uh, from local independent businesses anyway. If we could manage that 10% shift here, that's £2 million in our economy every year. That's economic development. That's not some sort of knitting, sort of yoghurt knitting, muesli kind of <laughs> carry on. That's... that's, that's something that's really going to make a big difference. And that's just the beginning. Next. And this is in, in Liège, in Belgium. This is a project called Centur d'Alimentaire, which means the food belt. They're looking now at how can they reconnect the city with the land around it so the, city feed, so the land feeds the city again. And it's, an, it's something that people are starting to look at in a whole range of different places. And we'll come back to that in a minute as well. This is in Preston. This is really interesting. Preston Council recently did uh, a big piece of work with an organisation called the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, where they looked at how they and the other seven key stakeholders in the city spend their money. So that's the local police, the universities, hospitals, all that kind of stuff. The big key players, the seven biggest ones, where do they spend their money? They, together, they spend £750 million a year on, on goods and services that they procure. They were horrified to find that only 4% of that is spent in Preston. Only 29% of it is spent in Lancashire. All the rest of it just is gone. 
So it's 500 million pounds, roughly, a year, just pouring out. You think what they could do if they actually were able to make those connections, make those so the, the, the benefit they could have. What they're talking about, they're starting to now use technology like, like technology, uh, what's the word, terminology, like saying we want to be embedded in place. We want to be an organisation that is embedded in place, that's embedded in our local economy. They're now writing the multiplier effect into their procurement process. So if you want a contract from them, you have to show how you add to the local multiplier effect. That's, that's a really key shift, a really key shift. And there's other, other places now starting to look at doing that. Uh, this could really be what starts to turn around this stuff more nationally in the mainstream. And for me, one of the, one of the areas that I've always been really fascinated in as someone who's taught strawberry building and comp building and natural building is the whole is the role of local materials in all of this. This is a building in Wales called the One World Theatre that was built using mostly local materials. This is the outside done with local uh, uh, willow, which was then clay plastered. Uh, really beautiful, but also, you know, and all the people in the community were invited to come and do it. Uh, and local materials can do that. This is a house that I built in Ireland. It was built using mostly materials from within 10, 15 miles of where the house was built. Cold building, head, plaster, lime, stone, timber, and so on. Next. This is uh, the new, uh, what's called the Enterprise Centre at the University of East Anglia. This is really, really interesting. This building, uh, this, is a, this building has thatched walls. And there's thatch on the roof as well, but they've done thatched walls. So this is, okay, we need to build a building. They started out saying, in the same way that as years teaching permaculture, I would say to people, where we want to get is that in the evening, when you think, right, time for supper. You don't think, time for supper, what's in the freezer? You think, time for supper, what's in the garden? It's a kind of a mental shift. You know, rather than what's in the fridge, what's in the garden. So when we build, we should be starting by saying, what do we have around us? What are our local resources? What are our local materials? There they have reed, they have thatchers. Brilliant. Let's do some thatched walls. Uh, and they use local timber, they use all kinds of different kind of innovative things. They're really trying to push that whole thing. So what would it look like if every time a new development went up around Wilmslow, it was set up to have at least 50%, 60% local materials in how those buildings were built. So that every big development project, rather than saying the 50% of this budget that we use to buy building materials will just go down to Travis Perkins and they'll just get them from wherever, Poland, China, wherever, then we get them cheapest. That 50%, that's a local economic regeneration project. That's a reskilling, a retraining, a reweaving of all kinds of different things together. That's, again, that's a real shift uh, in terms of how our economies work. From not again to never again. <coughs> That's not again as in, oh, not again. You know, all too often in the places where we go, oh, not another bloody supermarket application. Oh, not another. We were talking about today when we were walking around. You know, the amount of time you find you have to spend just trying to stop rubbish things happening before you can actually get on and do the good stuff. There's always all this nonsense kind of current. Okay, next. So this is a couple of things where we are. We're one of the only towns in the country that managed to get Costa to not open. Uh, uh, we ran a big campaign called No to Costa, but actually it was um, it was it wasn't an anti-Costa campaign. It was a pro-Totnes campaign. That was the really important thing. It was saying actually what we love about this place is we have forty independent places where you can buy a cup of coffee, and that really matters to us. And actually, if a big Costa open at the bottom of town, we lose 
about a third of those businesses. And those are local families who send their kids to the local school, they support the local carnival, that really matters. And actually, uh, and so that, that, that was great. And this is uh, a big development. This is the brewery that I'm involved in, the New Lion Brewery. And we did a special beer to support this campaign that was trying to prevent uh, the last dairy farm in the town being turned into housing. But that thing of sort of having to say no to things is important. Okay. But we can do it as well in a kind of more creative way. This is near where I live. This is a, 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 an awful new development that is replacing some bungalows. Uh, it's completely out of scale. It's completely inappropriate. It's a kind of urbanisation of a, of a sort of, of a, of a village, really. So the community got together and did their own design. So the community have done a redesign. They've got somebody who's an architect working with them to come up with something better. Actually, we don't like that plan. Actually, sorry, that's rubbish. But if you're going to have to build something, we'd rather you did this. And uh, so what we're going to do now is a, a community vote and get everybody out voting on this one or join this one. Uh, but we can approach this stuff in different ways, I think. Um, so we use this term of, often when you try and stop things, you get called a NIMBY, which is always a deeply kind of insulting uh, uh, term phrase, I think. So we use this term of SWIMBY, which is to say that it's not about NIMBYing a NIMBY, it's about saying we want something wonderful in our backyard. That's rubbish. Why would we want this appalling development when we could do something really magnificent here? And uh, I always think it's a bit like if you, if, you, if you want to go and buy a new computer and you've got £500 to buy a new computer, you don't go and buy some great clunky thing that runs on Windows uh, Microsoft 2 or something. You want to get the best thing you can for that. If you want to go and buy a telly, you want to get the best telly. So why do we sort of accept the most sort of paltry, hopeless housing developments? And if you say, actually, that's rubbish. You get called a NIMBY. <coughs> actually, we could do a lot better. So there's actually there's people actually now writing a musical called Something Wonderful in My Backyard, which is sort of transition town, the musical. <laughs> they were so taken with the word, with this idea of something wonderful in my backyard, they've done a musical about it. But I think it's really important. You know, we, we get so often put on the kind of back foot of having to try and stop things, actually coming out and saying, we could do so much better than that. There's a whole... Why would we want a housing development that is basically just about extracting money to some distant shareholders, actually we could do something that really supports this place, and we'll come on to that in a minute. Okay. From theirs to ours. Okay. Because ownership of things is really important, and taking, taking back control of things is really important. You know, the, our, the, the care sector in our communities has taken such a hammering uh, over the last few years of austerity. Uh, uh, really, really awful. And uh, this is a project that we've built down in Totnes called Caring Town Totnes, which is bringing together all those different organisations who, who, who provide care in our community and saying, well, how could we do this in a different way? How could we connect better to do this in a different way? And this is part of the consultation, saying to people, what makes, what makes people unwell? What makes people well? Where does wellness come from in our community? And what can we do to support that in ways, in, in different ways? And one of the key things, I think, is, is if we really want to uh, affect change where we are, we need to own assets as communities. You know, I think for the first few years of transition, we had this idea that we can meet on Wednesday evenings and, and do stuff on sufficient scale to actually really change what's happening around us. But you know, transition is really ambitious. We want to change the way the places where we live feed themselves and house themselves and employ themselves and power themselves. And to do that, we have to kind of scale up, I think, and sort of 
how, you know, how, how would entrepreneur look at, at that? How, how do you look at how to piece all that together? And a key part of it is about owning assets. So I want to go back to this, the, the place where I started at the beginning with the Atmos project. So once we had signed a contract to bring this site into community ownership, you know, this is, is this, so this isn't, a tr strictly speaking, this isn't a transition thing. This is the Tottenham Community Development Society that was the vehicle set up to make this project happen. But the idea was this site will be in community ownership and this site will be developed based on all the principles that we've talked about. One of the things that we're going to use is a power in the localism act called a community right to build order. And a community right to build order is a really fascinating piece of legislation. It was in the localism act in 2012. What it says is if you can, sh if you can show that you've engaged lots of people, you've done lots of consultation, you've created a master plan based on that consultation, then you can apply to have a referendum. And if you have a referendum and more than 50% of people say yes, that's planning permission, full planning permission. It's a community route uh, to planning that bypasses your, your local planning authority. And uh, that's what we want to do here. This is an eight-acre site. So from the beginning, we said to people, this is a blank slate, literally. This is not a con uh, uh, the kind of consultation you're used to where someone says, here's a thing, we've already designed it. Do you like it? You don't? Never mind, well, we're going to do it anyway. This really says this is a blank slate. Anything could happen here. We, uh, we ran a consultation where we had uh, 2,000 people came through in the first eight weeks, gave their ideas. We engaged another 500 people uh, at outreach events that we did. We had what we called a community design team that was 20 people from the community who were like a sort of focus group of the community who went on site, who went around the town, did design work. And what was really moving with that consultation was it had a bit past, present and future. So normally if you start with an old factory, you just want to knock it down. It's just an old factory. You want to build something else. What are we going to build on here? That's what it's all about. This started by saying the past of this site really matters. This was a big employer in the town. You know, come in and tell us your stories. First time, the first week we were open, there was a guy came in and he said, if you add up myself, my wife, my father, my father-in-law, all my immediate family, we worked on this site for 150 years. He said, I got made redundant in 2007. I was off work with depression for the next six years. I hadn't been back here since. This is the first time I've been back here. He said, it took me a lot to come back here today. Mm. He was very tearful. And, uh, and he talked about how it was working there and how much it meant to him. People brought in photographs of when they worked there. There was a social club. People, all their kids had birthday parties there. Uh, you, you, know, you find that actually the social club, which is on the site, which shut down when the factory shut down. Mm. For four years, people who worked in that place paid 10p in their salary every week. Uh, and over four years they raised enough money to build themselves a social club and they built it themselves over the weekend the guy who was the site manager at the time came in and he said oh yeah he said well uh, when they were building that they were starting building that well he said we mixed up an awful lot of concrete he said to fill in a, to fill in a few potholes and uh, we'd run out of places to put it so I said well ch chuck it all over there lads sort of where they were in the footings for the shed so I can say that now it's 20 years on <laughs> You know, but making that space for that story was really, really powerful. It was really, really useful. And this is the site, so we've really said, this is a blank slate. Anything can happen on here. Um, well, that's the site of the, this factory. This is the site, yeah. So this is the Totnes railway station here. This is the river. This is the, like a leet that runs across through the site. So, so people have been really... So, so the community right to build covers the whole site. 
There's a bit here, one of the bits that's really interesting is that the part of the deal as, as, we, as we negotiated it was they wanted a, a mainstream developer, McCarthy and Stone, to build old people like retirement housing, thank you, to build, to build here. So what's really groundbreaking about it is, yes, there is a mainstream developer doing this bit, but the community right to build order covers the whole site. So as a developer, they can only build what the community says they can build. So it's taken them way out of their comfort zone. But to their credit, they're up for it, and it's a really interesting uh, process of moving the whole thing forward. And actually, when you go to 2,500 people in a place and you say, what do you want in terms of housing? What, does, what would meet your needs? Actually, this is what people say. You know, we want different models. We don't just want sort of freehold ownership. We want different kinds of models. We want all ages together. We want actually, you know, the only problem with affordable housing these days is that nobody can afford it, sadly. <laughs> so actually affordable housing, uh, you know, integrated natural space, rooftop gardens, self-built, all that stuff has been distilled out of what 2,500 people told us they wanted. If we look at most of the building that's built around us nowadays, it doesn't do any of this. The market provides one thing, but this is what people actually need. You know, where I live now, the gap between what the average wage and the house price is such that there was only, last year, there was only 17 houses on the market that, people could, that were actually genuinely affordable houses. Okay? This is the kind of stuff that's being built around where we are. Hugely overpriced and so boring. <laughs> If you, if, if you haven't all fallen asleep by the time we move on to the next slide, something will have gone wrong. So. And then also I think that the next shift is, is from this, the last shift is really about from clone towns to what we call places of possibility. You know, this is this thing where everybody everywhere starts to look the same and we start to lose actually what it is that really makes us love the places where we live. Why do we love the place? What do we love about it? Okay. Now this is, a, this is a diagram that will give you a migraine, I do apologise for this. But actually there's something really important in this. This is, um, don't bother with all the reading, because I'll just, just, this is the important bit. So, um, this is a group in London called Growing Communities in Hackney, who are an amazing project who have spent years building a kind of a, a local food business in the middle of London. And their big question is, to what extent could London feed itself? Yeah. And they've done all this research and, and, and looking at Actually, what would that look like? Could London feed itself? Well, of course it could. That's ridiculous. But actually, 2.5% of London's food could come from back gardens, allotments, balconies, rooftop gardens. 5% could come from new market gardens, intensive urban food production in market gardens, and growing communities have started quite a few of those in Hackney. 175 could come from the land immediately around the city, currently covered in stockbrokers' ponies and stuff. Yeah, but actually, that, that, that land traditionally is what fed London. And actually, rebuilding those relationships is really important. Within 100 miles, 35%. The rest of the UK, 20%. So you're still importing 20%. Uh, bananas, chocolate, that kind of stuff. But actually, when I look at this, I look at that, I think that is the most... If I was, if I was 18, if I was 20 now, mm -hmm. I'd be looking at that and I'm thinking, that's... The, that's the new economy. If I'm an entrepreneur looking at that, I'm thinking this. But all this, this is kind of already happening. You go to London now, there's every corner, there's new craft, craft breweries popping up, people growing mushrooms on different things, people growing food in different places. This, this is happening now. This is not some fanciful thing that might happen in some utopian future. This is kind of already happening. People are looking at this and that's already starting to happen. 
You know, so when people say, well, what might a low-carbon future look like? It looks like this. And you can already see sometimes, that what always enrages me when I get asked things, people say, oh, you're very utopian. Mm-hmm. Not, it's not utopian at all. Because I, pitch, I piece it together and say, well, it's like my friend Dave's garden and so-and-so's house and that market garden I saw in Hackney. You know, all that stuff's already in place. This is in London, Crystal Palace, Transition Crystal Palace, started a fantastic uh, the Crystal Palace food market, amazing uh, new food market in Crystal Palace. They were runner-up in the Food and Farming Awards. They so nearly won it. It was really, really so great for Transition to have won one. So they're the second, joint second best mar- uh, market in the country. Uh, uh, and that's a really great example. This is the, my brewery, uh, of which I'm a director. And this is, this, is, this is another kind of example. For me, we always have this idea, what would it look like if you had a brewery that was a craft brewery that was rooted in all of this new economy kind of approach? So that actually in 10 years' time, you could have an exhibition of all your pump clips and your beer labels, and it would tell the story of the transition that was happening around you. So the Atmos project I've been talking about, this is the Atmos ale that we brewed to celebrate. So as we run up to the referendum, We'll have Atmos Ale in all the pubs, we'll have Atmos Ale in bottles, you know, we can use a brewery to kind of start to stitch a lot of these things together, and I'll come back to one of those again in a minute. We have to say on our ingredients, water, malt, hops, yeast, community spirit. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a, a woman called Holly, who lives in town, who uh, started a project called Grown in Totnes, which is a, a local food project, and she's just kicked off a, a Kickstarter campaign, and it's about oats and, and grains. You know, around where we live there are oats that are grown, there's barley that's grown, but it's all for animal feed. And it all goes somewhere else. Because we no longer have the infrastructure to be able to process it. If you grow oats, actually turning oats into porridge oats is quite a mission. There's quite a few different stages in between having oats and having porridge oats. So, but to put that infrastructure back is, is really important. So this was an event last night, which I missed, in, our, in the brewery. Uh, as part of her crowdfunding thing, t- talking to people about oats and all the different stages of turning oats into porridge. And our brewery uh, produced a, a, a mild, uh, a beer called a mild, which is made out of her oats to celebrate this. So for the local entrepreneur forum this year, we're doing a beer, we're doing a mild made, by, made to celebrate a business who really last year's local entrepreneur forum. And you start to see how you stitch all this stuff together and you have a narrative that runs through the whole thing. This is the David Bowie £10 note from Brixton. I've got one here, I will pass it around. Every movement, every, every world-changing movement needs its banners, needs its flags, needs its icons. And this uh, David Bowie £10 note has, has become one of those. And, uh, uh, yeah, next. So I went to uh, Paris a few weeks ago uh, and into a suburb of Paris called Pray Saint-Gervais and uh, this is the mayor of Pray Saint-Gervais and he came along to have his photograph taken, not with me, not with the, the about 100 people in the group there who were part of Transition Pray Saint-Gervais, with the David Bowie £10 note. They were sort of shoving me to get in behind him so they could have a photo they could use. That was all he was interested in. And I've held, that, I've held that note up in talks and it's got a round of applause without me even saying anything. <laughs> There's something really kind of iconic about it and the story that it tells, and I think we need more of that kind of thing. And I think design and storytelling are a really key part of how we make this work. 
This is uh, this is rather silly, but it's, it's it's quite powerful as well. So this is from places to places of possibility. This is one of the ways that we can do that is is by looking at our local government in different ways. And in Froome, in Somerset, they had a very uh, turgid, old school, uh, uh, conservative town council who stifled anything from happening by saying, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's never going to work. And so a whole load of people came together as independents. They called themselves independents for Froome. And they were from all ranges, they were from across the political spectrum, but they agreed a kind of a platform of things that they would all support each other in making these things happen. It was about Froome and doing something interesting and new with the economy in the town. And uh, they all ran and they all got in. And it was a kind of clean sweep in the council. And uh, Peter McFadden, who was one of them, he wrote a really good book called Flat Pack Democracy, all about how they did it. And I'd really recommend uh, having a look at that if you're interested in doing anything about that. But P Peter has since become the mayor. And so he asked all the different community groups uh, in Froome to make him different kinds of mayoral chains. <laughs> so this is the Under Sevens Lego Club making this one. This is the allotment here is made in this one. This is the local bicycle repair workshop made in that one. Uh, this one was for Amnesty International Prisoners of Conscience. And these were all taken as kind of formal portraits and it's an exhibition that's been shown uh, in different places. But again, for me it's about, actually we can do more. And the idea of creating places of possibility, there's many different ways that we could do that. This is in, in, in Belgium, in a place called Grey, and uh, this is their place of possibility. This is a place, there was a farmer who, who had land going up to the edge of town who was bored of doing monocultural farming. He said, I'm fed up of it. It's so boring. And he went to France and he did a course about agroforestry. And he was planting trees everywhere, and he gave this piece of land uh, to the local community who started this community-supported agriculture scheme which feeds 60 families and has become a real kind of social uh, hub of the place. <coughs> so one of the ones, we're going back to beer again. This is uh, Crystal Palace, again, Transition Crystal Palace started this project called the Palace Pint. And they have people all over Crystal Palace now who grow hops in their back gardens, up the balconies, in, in all kinds of different fire escapes. And then one day in September they all harvest hops, bring them to a local brewery and they brew the Palace Pint using the hops that these guys have grown. And it's a community that grows and it grows and it grows. Very easy to do, but just a beautiful kind of way again of starting to stitch people together again and get starting people to ask those bigger questions. So there are two things I really want to leave you with, really, and then we'll have some questions. And one of them is, many of you, we, we had at the beginning, many of you are working in the places where you are doing this kind of stuff. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for all that you do. And every, many other people would thank you too. And it can feel like a thankless thing. We're just working away doing it. But there are many, many people alive now and in the future who are deeply grateful uh, for what you do. But it can feel very often like it's not really, there's not much happening from it. And I think one of the key things that I've picked up from doing this for a long time is you never know where the tipping points are. Mm. I went to, Bel to Berlin a little while ago. There was a group there, they were quite a small transition group. They had started a project planting fruit trees in the park in Kreuzberg, in the middle of Berlin, quite a rough part of Berlin, planting these uh, fruit trees in the park. They said, well, it's just planting fruit trees. It took us quite a lot to get permission to do it and everything, but they got it done. A year later, their local council for that part of the city passed a resolution to say that, that any trees that they plant, any landscaping they do, will all be edible plants from that point forward. But you trace that back to that moment of them saying, let's plant some trees. Somebody at some point walked along and thought, 
I like that. I can do something with that. And you never know when that's going to happen. Mm. This is a, an 1810 Totnes pound, issued by the Bank <coughs> of Totnes in 1810. And in 2007, I walked into a building on the high street in our town, and there on the wall was this framed banknote. I thought, that's interesting. What would happen if we made some new ones of those? Would the Queen come round and chuck stones through my window? <laughs> would I be dragged off to some special place under the Tower of London and have my feet tickled or something? And actually, and we formed an advisory panel of alternative, learned alternative economists, and we said, could we? And they said, no idea. Do it and see what happens. <laughs> so you are not really an advisory panel, are you, really, strictly speaking? And that the true meaning of the expression. So anyway, so we did, and we printed some one-pound notes, and then... And then th that went quite well. And then Lewis typically looked at something we did and went off and did it far better. And, uh, and then uh, Stroud did it. And then Brixton did it. And then Bristol uh, decided they were going to do it. And at that point when Bristol announced, a city of 800,000 people, that they were going to do their own currency, and they got lots of press to say we're going to do this thing, the Bank of England rang them up and said, sorry, you're, uh, you're doing what exactly? I think you need to come up and have a little chat. So they got called up to the Bank of England and spent three hours with the Bank of England getting grilled. So what are you doing? How do you mean, what do you mean printing money? What's that all about? You know, as a result of that, the Bank of England published this, which is their kind of official document of their understanding of the legality and the, and the role of local currencies. Uh, and if you're interested, the, 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 the legal status is that of book tokens. Strictly speaking, it's not money. Uh, as long as you don't put the Queen's head on it, you can kind of get away with it. If you put the Queen on it, then you're in real trouble. But it's fine for me. I'd rather have David Bowie than the Queen on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now here we are, uh, later, you know, there's an Exeter pound about to launch. There's all kinds of other ones, a Cardiff pound, a Kingston pound, all these ones are starting. There's so many that there's now a thing called the Guild of Independent Currencies, which is set up to support these things around the country. But you can trace that back to that moment of saying, shall we? We? we could, couldn't we? Let's go on, let's ring the printer, why not? Let's just, let's just do something and see what happens. There's real power in that moment of thinking, let's just do it. You never know who's going to come to the garden with the community orchard that we went to see today and think, actually, that's a nice idea, we could take that over there and do that with it. So it's really important, even though things feel small, it's really important that you do that. Okay. And also, the other thing is, well, so, but what about get the government doesn't, isn't going to None of this stuff's going to change policy. Government just does what government does. And every four years, like today, we get to go out and vote whether we want them or not. The rest of the time, they just do what they like. They don't listen to this stuff. Actually, they do. And actually, the way that you change policy is just by getting on with it and doing it, not waiting for permission from anybody. So actually, when Ed Davey went to Brixton to launch his community energy uh, revolution, which had already been started, thank you very much, and going very nicely in the previous four years, completely uh, independent of, of the government. And it's actually what we need is a community energy strategy. Well, actually, we helped write it. Transition Network helped write it. Lots of the case studies in it were transition groups had already just got on with it and done it. That stuff was already out and running. The way to do it is to just get on with it, and politicians will catch you up. If we wait for them, it'll just, we'll just be waiting far too long. But just get on with it and just start changing things in that way. And actually, that event that we talked about at the very beginning, the local college made this cake. Uh, it took three people to lift, this was a big cake, it took three people to lift this cake. There was a little gingerbread little, uh, little building on it, it was the most beautiful cake. You know, and actually, for me, the thing for this was, is it possible that we could create 
change, we could create a future for the places that we live that's so exciting, that's so compelling, that people feel moved and inspired to make a cake that beautiful, to celebrate it. Of course we can, and actually it's already happening, and you're all making it happen, and it's really, really important. And that's what I was going to say. Thank you.